from Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 326. Today's show is brought to you by DoorDash, Pingdom, Samebox, and Remote Works. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. Ah, what a week. We have a monumental, <laughs> historical, groundbreaking episode of Upgrade today. Product reviews, interviews, so much more. We have a yep. ton to get to. It is going to be a fantastic episode ahead, but we must start, as we will every episode of Upgrade, of a Snell Talk question sent in by an Upgradian. And this time, we'll choose Molly's, who asks, Jason, what's your favorite mini? iPad mini? iPhone mini? Mac mini? HomePod mini? What's your favorite mini? Well, what I want to say to be super cool is to say the iPod mini. Remember that? Ah, yes, yes. I think but it's the Mac Mini. It's the Mac Mini is my is mine because I've 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 had a Mac Mini in my uh, house as a server since the first Mac Mini. Uh, I'm on my fourth now, third or fourth. I mean, and it's been like 15 plus years since it's been more than that. Actually, it's been like almost 20 years since the Mac Mini first came out. It's uh, so it's yeah that that's got to be my answer because I have had a Mac Mini chugging away doing stuff in my house uh since the very beginning and mm. uh so i think it has to be my my favorite because it's uh it's been the longest longest serving mine is ipod mini because my pink ipod mini that i had oh. was my entry into uh the apple ecosystem it was right. my first apple product i love i love those colors i love the ipod mini it was great yep. we had one um loved it so thank you so much to Molly's for that question. It was a good one. Uh, you can send in a question to help us open an episode of Upgrade. All you have to do is send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade or just use the command question mark AskUpgrade in the RelayFM members Discord. So we do have a lot to cover this week. One thing we're not going to be covering is macOS Big Sur. Um, love you, macOS, but we don't have the time for you today. Plus, the other thing is, Jason, I've not used it. Um, but okay. I, I have my MacBook Pro coming this week, my M1 MacBook Pro, which has Big oh, Sur yes. on it. It does. So that's going to be my first escape it. usage of Big Sur. I mean, I, I put Big Sur on a 16-inch MacBook Pro review unit that I had, right. um, but I it, I made, this was like beta one, and I got to use it for about two weeks before I had to send it back again. Um, right. And, you know... Look, we've just spoken about in a bunch of places. Big Sur has been shaky for some types of applications. Audio applications is one of them. So I wasn't going to put it on any of my uh, recording machines. But my M1 Mac ships with it. So we'll talk about Big Sur uh, in a little more detail on next week's episode. Right. Uh, now, one thing we do definitely must have to cover today is our iPhone, the, the remaining iPhone reviews that we need to get to. Yes. So you've had... Uh, the iPhone Mini and the iPhone Max for I do nearly two weeks, but of course there's been <sighs> so much going on. I don't think you've actually. I don't. When we spoke about it, you haven't written a review. I don't know if what, you're going uh, to write a review. When did I? When did I get the? I don't. I don't actually. It would have been last. No, last last Monday. Something like the that. day before the day before the Apple event. So yeah, yes. for so so a, a little over a week. Mm-hmm. Yep, I got them right here. Now, obviously, I've had my Pro Max uh, since last Friday, um, and I have a lot of thoughts on it. And uh, so I think really, to cover these, I think we should probably both take one of them, because the Mini is more of the phone for you, the Max is more of the phone for me, 
the it's Pro true. Max is not a phone for you, right? Like, nope. especially this one. So I want to get your thoughts on the iPhone 12 mini. Uh, I, really, the, the question to ask is, what do you think of the size? Is this the right size for you, or has the ship sailed for you at this well, point? I, I love the size of it. I, I'm really loving the iPhone 12. Um, I, I think, it's hard to say, I think I'm right on the edge where I, I, I see the benefit of both of them mm-hmm. and I'm not sure which way I would lean at this point. Uh, but you know, it, it, I don't use my iPhone as much as a lot of people do because I never leave the house. Although a lot of people don't do that now. But I never did, <laughs> and I still don't. Um, the iPhone Mini, uh, iPhone 12 Mini, has appeal to me because first off, I like the 12. I don't feel like the 12 Pro would be for me anyway. Um, it has additional features, but I, I prefer the feel of the 12. And the 12 is is cheaper. It's a better buy. The Mini is cheaper still, and uh, it's delightful, right? Like it feels like an iPhone 5 kind of, even though it's slightly larger than that. It, it actually is so small and. Uh, that that I could I can put my finger up on the top where the um where the on off button used to be mm-hmm. <laughs> that they had to move to the side because it was too far up you could actually reach that part now um so I guess what I'm saying is anybody who's had pause about the size of the iPhone and has fought that and has avoided um buying iPhones and always tried to find the smaller iPhone and choose that one. Um, this is the phone for you. Like, if you've ever questioned the size of the iPhone, this is the phone for you because it's good, it's fast, it feels great to hold in your hand, and it is much smaller than any iPhone ever, Apple is ever going to make. Like, this is it. If you want it, this is it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I would seriously consider buying one. It, you know, from from my own use, but I would also seriously consider the. Um, the regular 12, just because it is, you know, I'm kind of used to that size now. It's, it doesn't feel oppressively big. I'm not putting it in a case, uh, which makes it feel a little bit smaller. Um, but you know, it's totally usable. And actually for people who are concerned, cause the way the 12 screen works, the 12 mini screen is a shrunken down version of the 12 screen. It's actually scaled down. So everything's a little bit smaller. And if you're somebody who has like issues with your vision reading small things, that's not great. Although I will say there's a, a scaling mode in the mini <laughs> that makes everything bigger. And uh, it's still quite usable in that form. Um, the only limitation I would mention is I think some apps <laughs> are not prepared for that size of hmm. screen. Uh, some of them work better than others at that smaller screen size. But um, because it's then it's using like the real uh, smaller screen uh, resolution as opposed to just using the iPhone 10 resolution. But in general, like it's just it's just an iPhone 12 except smaller. It's it's really nice. So I, I, that for now, I, that's sort of my review of it is it's the iPhone 12 for people who look at the 12 or the 10 or even the six, seven, eight and think it's just too, it's, it's bigger than I'd like. Like literally if you've ever given your, you know, some pause or changed your buying patterns because you're concerned about the size, I think this is the phone for you. 
I feel like maybe if this was always a product, it would have been likely where you would have gravitated to naturally. I think probably so. I mean, I was I wasn't thrilled at the size increase in the six. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't thrilled with the size increase in the ten, although it was subtle, so I got used to it. But um, I'm not one of those people like like you, for example, who says bigger screen. And so many people are like, you know, bigger screen, give me more. I want more. And with my phone, I think I, I want less. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to have a, a phone and I want to be able to look at it and see what's going on in the world. But I also don't feel the need on my phone to have an expansive uh, – I just don't use my phone that way. I, yeah. I'm going to use an iPad or, or a, a a Mac or a TV for that. I'm not going to uh, be completely kind of engaged in the content on my on my phone. My phone is more utilitarian than that. That's just sort of how I treat it. It's kind of intriguing to me that Apple decided to make this phone now. It's like, why now? I don't know. Maybe they always wanted to. And it was just a matter of sort of their timing. They were experimenting with lots of things. They had to do the the OLED transition with the iPhone 10, and then they wanted to do that other uh, class of phone with the with the 10R the next year. Yeah, uh, maybe it just it really was that um, it was always on their list, and now is the time when they finally were able to do it. Yeah, it's just intriguing. I, I'm going to be, you know, I, I'm. You know, I have my eye on this. There's been outlier phones, right? So many outlier phones. Um, you know, you look something like the five C, the ten R. These phones that that are one and dones, or they're they're kind of peculiar things. So like even the SE, to some degree. Like whilst they've done another one of them, they've both been very different. Like the original yep. SE to this SE is a very different product. They're recycled old products is what yeah. it is, right? They're recycled old products and and the 10R became the 11 essentially. Yep. So that was a that was a, a a product transition, but that product has kind of disappeared now. Yep. And we and we're left with because we don't have an 11 Max or something that's a little bit bigger. No. Um but the the mini, you know, the mini really does honestly, it feels like uh, the return of the iPhone SE one, or really the return of the iPhone five, essentially, yeah. like it's an iPhone five. I know it's not quite the same size. I have an iPhone five. I pulled it out. It, it is it is smaller than this, but like not much. It, it, and they look the same because they've got the flat sides. It's mm-hmm. just it's. I think it's remarkable because there were a lot of us who figured Apple was never going to go back there, right? Like, it's over. Just get used to it. And I wonder to what extent the iPhone mini exists because Apple did keep hearing from people that there was, you know, this category, this subcategory of of iPhone users who just, just didn't want a big phone. And at some point, they decided, well, we need, I think... You know, I think the source of this is that as as iPhone sales stalled, Apple realized the way that you continue to grow the iPhone is by offering more models in with more variations so that you can focus on some new sort of sweet spots and spread out yeah. the different slots that you're using. And obviously that's four new phones, right? You can try and find the edges and cater to the edges a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. Also, the SE has done so well for them. I mean, but the the, the thing about the SE 
you know, because Tim, you know, in the earning schools, they always talk very highly about the SE, about how, you know, like I think the, maybe the original one at least, uh, I remember them saying like it vastly outperformed their expectation. But the question on that, which I, I think is it's it's hard to answer. I don't think we can answer it. Is like what is the appetite for the SE? Is it I want a small iPhone or I want a cheap iPhone? Because the Mini is not right. a cheap iPhone, right? Like the Mini is the start of the line. But it's the cheapest of the modern yep. iPhones. Yeah. So it is It is still a little bit both, but it's also not like dirt cheap or anything like that. Yeah, cheap um, is... No, it'll be interesting to see. I, they, they have, I think Apple has underestimated the SE, um, and I think maybe an, an Apple learned the lesson of the success of big Android phones a little too well. Like they learned it and they integrated it and they had great success with larger phones and maybe they just kept driving on the larger phone for a while because it's like as long as this is working for us let's keep doing it yeah and maybe now have realized that although that drive because here's the thing it's not like that drive was wrong people do love big phones not not everybody and those people out there who don't love them are going to roll their eyes at this but it's like you can't argue with the sales people love big phones the moment apple made a bigger iPhone, iPhone sales shot up like dramatically. Yep. Like yep. people, and, and we saw it with Samsung and other Android phone makers, big phones. There are a lot of people who just want a big phone. And so they made the right decision to go in that direction. But you've got to wonder if maybe at some point after that started to cool a little bit, they realized that there is also a section of the market that doesn't like the big phone. And so making something that is a little more in tune with them gives them another piece of the market that maybe they were ignoring. And when you're trying to get every last sale out of the iPhone, which remember up until a couple of years ago, Apple wasn't even trying very hard with mm-hmm. the iPhone. It it did so well that Apple didn't really need even, they didn't try very hard in the stores. They, they weren't marketing the iPhone because it sold itself in huge quantities. And then their sales fell off a cliff and they're like, oh, um, we need to work on sales of the iPhone. And then maybe in that era, they're like, what are we missing here? And they looked at the, at the size and said, that's a place where we can, we can attack that corner of the market that seems dissatisfied with what we're doing. Uh, there's one question I did have, cause and I actually had quite a few people write in to ask this. How does it feel to type on for you? It's, it's more cramped to type on for sure. Although, I never really have felt super comfortable with typing on the um, on the iPhone 10 either. <laughs> I mean, right. it's still not great. It's still not a huge expanse to type on, and there's you've got to wrestle with autocorrect. In fact, I can maybe make the argument that it's small enough that you that it might be more conducive to leaning into the autocorrect because you're just not going to be precise on such a small keyboard. But you know, in the end. All I can say is in my use, which is going to, it's going to differ for everybody. I thought it was fine to type on. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was, I, I, I had my frustrations, but I had my frustrations typing on an iPhone period. So I don't think it was any more frustrating than it would be. And of course, for those who haven't, you know, used a, a, a big iPhone in a while, uh, you know, the iPhone five, um, they, there was no swipe typing on the iPhone 5. It might actually be a better experience now, right? Because you can also, you don't have to tap. You could also swipe uh, if you want to get words out that way. So there, there's other options now. But it was, you know, for me, not a big difference in that it was sort of equally frustrating to typing on a regular iPhone. But everybody's mileage might might vary. It is a smaller keyboard for sure. Okay. Can I talk about the Pro Max now? 
Yeah, let me. I, I have one thing to say about it before I hand it over to you, which right. is, I got this thing last Monday, and the first thing I did, like the first thing I did, I picked it up, I looked at it, I held it in my hand, and I, and then I went to Slack to a direct message to Mike Hurley, and I said, "You are going <laughs> to love this." <laughs> and the reason I said that is not only is it I've got the gold model, it's pretty, um, it's shiny. But I picked it up, and the way it feels, it feels solid. It is heavy. It is huge. But it is like a, it's like a gold bar, Mike. It's just like mm-hmm. it, it is. Some there's something really pleasing about the density of this thing, and and the uniformity of the density of this thing. Um, it's so big that I feel like I can just like my hand doesn't just hold it, but it kind of like wraps around itself. And, you know, the fingers are against the back. Like, it's so large that I feel like I can hold it in two hands. And, and I don't know. I don't know how to put it. It, it is. I And, and that's why I, I sent you that message is because I feel like if you're going to make a big phone. Just embrace it. Like, make a big phone. Don't yep. don't go halfway and be like, well, it's larger, but we don't want to push it too far. It's like, push it. Make it make it a big slab of a phone with extra cameras like extra zoom do all of those things if you're going to do it and that's what in my mind that's what the pro max is is that like more than any large iphone ever apple has just embraced it's huge like you wanted a huge phone and there is none more huge so the phrase that has kept popping into my head so i do have the gold pro max this is the ultimate iPhone. That's I'm not saying that my iPhone is better than yours, but like this iPhone, it is everything an iPhone has ever had and more of it. It feels like the most iPhone there has ever been. So ever since the original iPhone, I have always been the kind of person to plan and save money to make sure I buy the new phone every year. Like so many of our listeners, right? Because I want the new phone. I always want the new phone. If I was living a completely different life where I was not a technology podcaster as a living, I would still get the new iPhone every year because it's what I did before, right? It's This is just one of the ways that I chose to spend money in my life to either buy it or be on some kind of phone contract that would make sure that I get it. You know, like I would probably be on the iPhone upgrade program. That's probably what I would have chosen to do. So, for me, this phone, if it had nothing but the new design, I would be completely happy. The new design is, in my opinion, the very best thing about this phone. And, uh, you know, I I think that that might be the same for the whole line. It's kind of strange because I feel like for the last few weeks, I have overlooked it, the new design, because it was an inevitability. We all knew it was going to be the case that it was going to have these flat sides. And I kind of just didn't really think about it. I heard a bunch of people say, you know, like you've said it, every review that I've listened to said it's like it changes the way that it feels to hold. Some people like it, some people don't. But for me, I absolutely adore it. So I think this is definitely enhanced by the fact that I have the flashiest one, which is the gold one. So I am. I feel like I am visually more aware of it. Like 
if I look at my phone face on, I still see a hint of gold around the edge. And I, I feel like maybe on some of the other phones, especially the darker ones, you maybe wouldn't see that so much. But I can always see a glimpse of the gold. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's there. Like, I'm looking at this one, and yeah. it's that same thing, which is when you're looking at it from the front, there is no mistaking. No. Even when it's just in your hand and you're looking at the screen, there's no mistaking that it's gold. And I think that it makes it not only feel great, but it feels luxurious. Like, honestly, I know this phone is so expensive, but it feels like it's more, it should be more expensive than it is. This feels like a luxury product. This is the kind of look that you have seen companies mod phones and sell them for $10,000 for the last few years, right? Like you, you'll see it on YouTube, right? Like some YouTuber will get sent like a 24 carat plated gold iPhone. And it's like, there's 10 of them. And you know, that's what this phone looks like. It is your call as to whether you want that. I do, right? And, and I think that this phone is stunning. But irrespective of the look, this is the best feeling iPhone. I absolutely love how this phone feels in my hand. It feels so much more usable than some, like it, from a sense of being able to grip it. I feel like I can hold it much easier than before. And even though this phone, I know it's physically bigger, it feels just as usable to me. I don't feel like I'm struggling with this phone. And I picked up my 11 Pro Max yesterday and it felt small already, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> but I genuinely, like you said, I'm not kidding. I picked it up and I thought that I picked up Adina's old 11. It like took me a minute. I was like, oh no, that's mine. Um, mm-hmm. The camera bump is absolutely ginormous on this. Like it is, it is astronomically large. You cannot conceive of it until you've seen it. Um, like you, I look at it in images, and it didn't it didn't register to me that it was bigger, but it is so much bigger. It's bigger and and deeper too, right? Like it's yep. it's not just that the square is big and the square is big, but also the lenses are protruding more from the square. It is yep. it. Like, this is what I mean by if you're going to you really do a it. giant phone, embrace it. Just embrace it. But this to me though is like it's kind of proven that uh, the camera differences they're here to stay again because. You couldn't put this on another phone. It's too big. So yeah. I expect they will find ways to to trickle the technology down once they can get it smaller. But I think all it's going to mean now for the foreseeable future is that the Max phone will have some kind of differences to the regular size phone in the camera now because yeah. they've ripped the Band-Aid off and <laughs> it's massive. And so they've given themselves the space and the um, the excuse to do new things with that. So I expect that to to continue. So the camera itself, this is a difficult one for me to test because the way that I would usually test out how good a camera is, is to go out into the world and take lots of pictures, mostly of architecture. That's how I like to test the camera. This is not really something that I'm doing. Um, I've been taking some photos inside of boring things, and I can see differences in sharpness, detail, and color with indoor photos. Um, I can see it. It's there. The sharpness especially. You know, like I take a picture of my office, and I can zoom in and more clearly see text, for example, on on certain images. Um, And that's great. But there are, I think, more tangible benefits than those. So the two biggest benefits that I've felt with the camera system on the Pro Max 
One is the telephoto. It's a noticeable difference, the 2.5 over the 2. Um, and I, I like to have more zoom. I hope to see Apple t do something more aggressive with this in the future, but I'm happy to have an increased zoom. But honestly, my favorite thing is the fact that, and this is on both Pro phones, I believe. It might be on all of them. I don't remember. Maybe you can correct me. Uh, night mode on the front-facing camera. Night mode on the front-facing camera. I think camera. it's on all of them. I think that was part of the A14. Like, all the phones got this. Yeah, the the it's the it's the night mode portrait that's different, and you've got to have the LiDAR scanner for that. Yeah. And then, so it's only on the pros. But night mode is on all the cameras now. And night mode, just a one-second night mode exposure on a selfie is night and day different. Like unbelievably different like i will take pictures on my old phone and so like the the texture of my skin is just this blurred mush right but with a one second night mode exposure there's so much more detail in selfies and so that i was like i i've been testing that out a bunch it's like that is a big difference and that kind of thing is something that you won't see a lot of like hi, I'm doing my camera review for you kind of thing because it's not really exciting. But those are the types of differences, like that one, the front-facing camera, that's going to make a bigger difference on people because people take lots of selfies. And better selfies indoors is a good thing all the time. And so that I saw right. that as like a, a, a real cool thing and a big difference. Um, but look, the, the biggest the biggest change in the camera system is the HDR video. It is fantastic. It looks so good. And it's a combination of what the camera can do and what the screens can show. But video on these phones just looks so gorgeous because the screen is lit up so well. And it, I think it's absolutely fantastic. So the camera is an interesting one. Um, and, and I'm kind of keen to see how it goes. I mean, everything else, you know, I don't have a 5G plan and I have no desire to upgrade to 5G. Uh, A14 and LiDAR, I'm sure will be helpful when I need them. Um, MagSafe is not a thing that I'm using because I like to use pop sockets and there isn't an option there. So I just have right. my pop socket on and I can kind of get it to work, but like, I'm not interested. Uh, I'm excited to try out the Apple Pro Raw when iOS 14.3 ships and just see like what can I make this camera system do. But overall for me, like it is the physical attributes of this phone that make it what I want. It is bigger. I get a little bit more detail, a little bit more information on the screen, but not a lot. But it is the overall design and the way it feels in my hand and the way it looks when I look at it. This is without a doubt my favorite iPhone design of all time like hands down it is in my opinion the best iphone that they have made and i am talking personally specifically about this gold pro max i think the pro max is great overall but this gold one is amazing so what you're saying is i was right yep <laughs> yep your your instinct was bang on and i was i was worried because when you said that my expectations got set really high and so I was, I was concerned, right? That it's like, oh no, am I gonna? As Jason, like, kind of put that in my brain now. But no, I, you were completely right. I friggin' love this phone. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Like, it's not for me, but um, 
what it is is so you know it, it's I, I i've been doing this in the 20 max or 20 20 series i've been revisiting a lot of the kind of classic max from the early days of steve jobs and johnny ive and there is this thing that they say which is uh a product should be true to itself and the elements of it should be true to itself. So they, they, in the, what the, the G4 iMac with a floating screen, that was the example they used. It's like you, you want the elements to be true to themselves and the product needs to live its best life. Basically it Mm -hmm. needs to be, it's what it should be, what it needs to be. And looking at this phone, the 12 pro max makes me think that as successful as apple was with its large phones with with the plus and then and then max models that apple was always a little embarrassed about having a big phone like they were always like well it's a compromise but we'll do it because people want it and i'm not saying that those phones were bad they weren't but they i felt like apple you know, Apple wants everything to be smaller and thinner and lighter. And they're like, okay, bigger phone, like almost apologetic or like, how do we mitigate the fact that this is such a big phone? And when I started using this pro max, the 12 pro max, I thought they have any remaining, um, embarrassment or, or limitation has been dropped. Like they have fully embraced that it's an enormous phone. And I know that that sounds, it's almost intangible. It's like, well, what, what makes you say that? And it's like, I don't know. You gotta, you kind of gotta feel it and look at it. Like they leaned all the way into making a gigantic full featured heavy, uh, slab of technology, like Mm -hmm. as much as they could possibly. And, and so I, I see where you're coming from, which is if you like a large phone, this is Apple giving you everything you like about it to their fullest extent. So it's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be for everybody. But if you like that kind of phone, and I know you do, they really did a great job with this one. It is it is unabashedly a an enormous slab of technology, and that's what it should be. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by SaneBox. When we think about time wasters at work, the biggest one has got to be email. In fact, A recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that probably should have never been sent to them or didn't need an answer in the first place. We have all experienced this. Everyone gets more email than they want. But what if you could just press a magic button and never have to see the emails again that waste your time? This is what SaneBox is all about. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control, filtering out all the messages that do not need your focus. You don't have to switch email apps because it works in whichever email client you're already using. It has nifty features like Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders, so you can send email reminders to your future self. I am such a fan of SaneBox. It really helps to filter out a lot of the email that I don't need to be in my inbox. This can be good and bad stuff. So, you know, there's the same later folder. 
which collects up stuff that Samebox believes that I don't want to see. Maybe it's from first-time people who contacting me out of the blue, that kind of stuff, so I can get to those when I need to later on, keeping my inbox focused on the conversations and the emails that I'm exchanging with people frequently. But also, Sane News is where all my newsletters get collected. You know, I want to read the email newsletters. That's why I subscribe to them. But if they're in my inbox, it can be crowding things up, so I might be more likely to remove them. But if I put them all in this, if they're all automatic, automatically filtered into the same news folder, I can go and dip into that when I have some time to spare. I love it. See how Samebox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Go to sanebox.com slash upgradefm today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash upgradefm. Our thanks to Sanebox for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, so now we would like to welcome back to Upgrade Tim Millay, Vice President of Platform Architecture, and Tom Boga, Apple's Senior Director of Mac and iPad Product Marketing to Upgrade. To help you tell their voices apart, the first question is going to be answered by Tim. We had the pleasure of being able to sit down with Tim and Tom a few days ago to have a great conversation about the new M1 Macs. Here it is. Gentlemen, welcome back to Upgrade again. We're so happy to have you back. It is great to be back. Uh, so yeah, we got to speak not too long ago about the A14, uh, but now we have the first Apple Silicon for the Mac, which is the M1. The performance gains that we saw in the event a few days ago, they feel like a real generational shift, like a huge leap. And I kind of wanted to know from your perspective what it's been like to see the M1 chip come together and how it felt when you first started to see the results that you were looking for. Well, I mean, as you can imagine, such a great feeling for for me, but for my team and for the broader uh, silicon development team at Apple, this was a huge, huge step forward for the, for us. And uh, we've obviously been um, seeing the results in the lab a lot longer. Uh, and so, you know, our excitement has been building for, for yesterday for a long time. And, and uh, I think we couldn't be happier with how, how it's executed. Now, that said, I, I think really I, what I have to give credit to is the full broader engineering teams at Apple because uh, we don't build chips to sell chips. We build systems and we always do it in an integrated collaborative way across hardware, software, the industrial design teams, the, the product design teams. And so really it's a, it's a it's a celebration from every perspective because you know in the end if it if it comes out and works it's because every corner of Apple has participated in it. Yeah, and if I could add some color to that. Tim sees this stuff a lot earlier than we do, but as we got, you know, prototype systems in our hands and and we started working with him on the product marketing side when you first turn one of these systems on and start using it you are just blown away and you realize that oh my gosh this is going to be an, an amazing experience you know from the how snappy and how performant the system is and how fast apps launch and just everything about it is is incredible and then as you're using the system you start realizing my gosh my my battery is not going down I mean, the battery life on these systems are insane. And so we've been using these systems for a while now. And on a daily basis, we're blown away by what they can do. And you start to uh, get very excited about, I can't wait to introduce this to the world. 
And I can't wait for our customers to get these in their hands because they're going to love it. You know what happens at the end of the book and uh, everybody else has to wait. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a very good analogy, but we have to, you know, we have to, to bite our tongue and, and wait for our moment and, and tell the world all about it. And, uh, and, and then it's, it's really, it's really interesting because you, you know, you keep things under wraps and you keep things a secret. And then in an instant, the whole world knows what you've known and you just feel the excitement and you get, you know, the text messages and you see the, the posting on Twitter and, and everything. And, and it's just incredibly exciting for us. And, you know, it was such a big moment on Tuesday for what we announced. And, uh, it was a huge day for the Mac and a huge day for Apple. So now on on the Mac, we are all going to have to change the way we think of uh, describing Macs and what's in a Mac. And I, I'm thinking in particular of how we're so used to seeing specs when we're looking at, uh, at Macs about, you know, it's got the i3 or the i5 or the i7, or it's got a particular uh, gigahertz clock speed that's attached to it and all of that. And one of the things that I think is is notable about the announcement is we got the M1, and that's the story. Is it's the M1 with a slight variation on the low end MacBook Air having seven GPU cores instead of eight. Otherwise, this is the M1. So I, I wanted to ask you directly: Is there truly just one M1? And if we see speed differences across these systems is that mostly due to the thermal envelope just as we saw some speed differences between the ipad air and the uh and the iphone with the a14 yes there there is one m1 that that chip uh as you mentioned there is a variant to it uh on the macbook air where the 999 config of macbook air uh, starts with a seven core gpu and the 1249 configuration has an eight core uh, gpu for even more performance but it's the same chip from the Air to the Mini to the Pro. And you will see differences in performance based on the thermal characteristics of the system. Now, in the MacBook Air, as we talked about in the keynote, it is incredible the performance that the Air now has with the M1 chip. It's the largest generational leap in performance the Air has ever gotten. Three and a half times faster CPU, five times faster GPU, nine times faster ML performance. It is crazy how much the performance of the air has gotten with M1. And it literally means that you can do things you would never think of doing with a MacBook Air. One of the stories I tell is, I, I, I think your listeners all know that we have a pro workflow team. And one of the guys on our pro workflow team, he's a, he's a professional photographer. And he got one of the MacBook Airs with M1 in it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to just try to move my entire pro workflow onto this, my photography workflow. And, uh, you know, using things like Lightroom, et cetera. And uh, he was blown away. He could take his whole workload, put it on an Air. And he's one of those photographers that goes out and shoots, you know, on location all the time. And so now he's going to bring an Air with him wherever he goes and he is he is incredibly excited about it you know but when you get to the the other part of the product lines uh like mac mini and the 13 inch macbook pro um, they have an active cooling system so what you're going to see is for those demanding workloads that are more sustained workloads workloads that you know operate over time that active cooling system is going to allow that m1 to just maintain that great performance indefinitely and so, you know, customers uh, will see the, the difference there. But it is 
profound how much performance the M1 is bringing to these systems. But, and I'm sure we're about to talk about it, but what's even more profound is the incredible power efficiency that these systems have because of M1. At the same time, they're getting a gigantic increase in performance. Right. One of the things that we've been talking about and speculating about Apple Silicon since WWDC and, you know, before that, when we called it our Max, is this idea of what will Apple choose? Will Apple choose more performance and to blow us away with the performance in the first Apple Silicon Max? Because we knew you could do that if you wanted to. And then there was this tantalizing idea that um, these... Uh, the chips that you use in the iPhone and the iPad are uh, so well optimized for power consumption because they're those are battery devices and you want to have good battery life. And so there were a, a lot of conversations that were which you know where will Apple choose to land in terms of performance and battery life? And in looking at what you've rolled out here, it's kind of funny. It feels like the answer was both. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to hear this question because the idea of optimizing performance without considering power is sort of, you know, it, it almost doesn't make sense to us because we have been so focused over so many generations of iOS products uh, where you don't get to deliver more performance unless you've managed the power. We we think about them together. Um, you kind of heard that in some of the some of the keynotes from WWDC and, and, and in uh, the, the keynote on Tuesday where efficiency equals performance. That's the way we think about it. If, you, if, you aren't in, if you're not introducing performance in an efficient way in an Apple product, you're not gonna get to recognize the performance. Uh, because you know, in an iPhone, my team doesn't get to go talk to the industrial design team to say, hey, could you make it a little bit thicker and maybe add a fan? <laughs> because we really wanna boost the performance of the machine. So instead, what we do is we focus obsessively on moving the performance up and locking in on that power target. Um, and for, for M1, the beautiful thing about an active cooling system is, is, is not that we built a bigger power burning chip, it's that we always build some margin into the chips to make sure that we can get the burst performance uh, on something like an iPad Pro, for example. And that burst performance is huge because you can do a really interesting scroll or a very complex game transition. And if you're doing it in a brief period of time, you can sustain that, you can, you can absorb that power. But what's beautiful about the active cooling system, that extra boost, that margin on top of the, for the CPU and GPU, we can sustain it now. We can actually, for pro-like workloads, you can run at that performance level for a lot longer. And so that's super exciting. Would it be fair to say that the discipline that you had to exercise in building chips for a phone is sort of what has led to this philosophy that, I mean, you, you were in a limited space with limited battery. You needed to be as efficient as possible in that context. Absolutely. Like I said, we didn't have an option. And so our focus on delivering increased performance for user experience, because that's what it's all about at Apple. It's not about selling chips. It's about participating in the delivery of this amazing product and the amazing experience. Well, our part we deliver the performance that software needs to deliver the experience that our HI team wants to deliver. And so for us, the only way, it's it really in the end, it's those constraints. It's the thermal constraints and the power constraints that led to the invention, the methodologies that have led us to this point. Because it wasn't that we didn't want to increase performance every generation. It's just that we had to do it with, you know, with that one hand tied behind our back. And so, okay, that's fine. We're going to get really good at, at designing these chips within those constraints. And frankly, I think great designs come from those kinds of constraints. And I think that's really, really what 
what led us to, you know, the culmination where we were able to deliver our first SOC into the Mac. And, and as we said in the keynote, M1 was specifically designed for our most popular and affordable systems where um, power efficiency is incredibly important, right? And so M1 uh, going into the MacBook Air, 13-inch MacBook Pro and Mac Mini, those were conceived from the beginning. And so to Tim's point, um, they're, they're perfectly matched in terms of providing this tremendous increase in performance while at the same time giving our customers ridiculously good battery life. While we're talking about performance and efficiency, you have four cores of each of those things in this. This is a new thing for Mac users to experience. We've had multi-core computers for a long time, but what we haven't had is the the uh, balance that's been in existence on the iOS side for a while now of of cores that are focused on performance and cores that are focused on efficiency. Just as the system has to arbitrate what goes on what core, and that's been true for a long time, these systems have to arbitrate sort of what goes where in terms of uh, performance and efficiency. How does that work? And is there a way for you know individual apps or individual user preferences or anything to influence what gets prioritized? Or is it more that the system handles it and it's a black box? Um, yes and yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the efficiency cores have been a part of the story for iOS, like you said, for, for many years. And Part of my group and the architecture team is to build part of that power controller you, you hear about, the power management controller, that that works very tightly with the with the operating system scheduler to try to figure out what to place where and how to make decisions about that. It is a new domain for the Mac, and it's going to be an interesting uh, experience to see developers get their heads around what it means. Uh, we think for multi-threaded workloads, it's going to look like an extension of the of the high performance uh, that we're getting from our performance cores, uh, just like it does, uh, for example, on our iPad Pros. I think in in other cases we we have more control over background tasks that the operating system can schedule, and we can constrain them and say, hey, we we can make choices about where we place these things because we think this would be a more appropriate thread to run on an eCore if we're in control of it. Ultimately, though, I think, you know, we do try to figure out how to just treat those cores as just part of the scheduling targets. It's, it's, it's giving us that additional performance and efficiency in the background when it's necessary. And we find that we try to drive as much as possible down into the e-cores. I mean, that's sort of the philosophy. If you can run something on the e-core, why not? Because it's going to end up, in, on average, giving you a better, efficient story. And frankly, these are not to be trifled with. These e-cores are, are, I think there was a comment, if you turned off the p-cores and just ran the e-cores, you'd still have an amazing experience. Yeah, but what we said in the keynote was on their own, the uh, four efficiency cores uh, is providing the performance equivalent to the uh, dual core, previous generation dual core MacBook Air. That was easily my favorite stat. Like I, <laughs> I felt like I was like having to, to bring myself back to composure again. Cause it was like, wait a second. <laughs> Is that what they said? Yeah. That, that was the thing I think that really like two X, three X, five X, they, they sound great. Right. But that was really something where it was a great statistic for contextualizing just the sheer power of these chips. I thought that was super cool. So we asked uh, for some questions from our audience, and we got lots of questions about the new unified memory architecture. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit. We're all used to RAM and 
more recently video RAM and that becoming a thing that people think about in the products that they may or may not purchase. Does the new system that the M1, does it change how we should think about RAM, RAM amounts and what they're capable of? Yeah, I love this question. As, as you can imagine, we, you know, we've been, for the iOS computers, we've been living in this unified memory world from, from the beginning. And the challenge and opportunity of a unified memory system is we need to make sure the, the, the graphics system, the GPU, has the bandwidth it needs to really demonstrate its strength. In a lot of ways, the, the bandwidth from the main memory system is the fuel that allows the GPU to do its work. And we build them in balance. We make sure that the great eight core GPU inside M1 is balanced with the bandwidth it needs to be great. Uh, those go hand in hand. Uh, we also appreciate CPUs. Uh, we need to make sure the memory system has the capacity to make a, a reasonable platform. And I think the 16 gigabyte capacity that we get out of M1 is a really great solution for the uh, the broad set of the MacBook Airs, the MacBook Pro 13, and the Mac Mini that we released. But what unified memory does, and the opportunity really is that if you were a developer who was ever frustrated by the fact that the memory system the CPU had access to was relatively low bandwidth and was limiting your multi-threaded performance. Well, a unified memory system gives you the bandwidth of a GPU, but it's available to the CPU. And if you were ever a GPU developer and you were always frustrated by the capacity that you ever got out of a video RAM, because they tended to be high bandwidth, but relatively low capacity compared to the main memory system. Well, all of a sudden you got the capacity of the main memory system at the bandwidth that the GPU needs. That by itself is super interesting because now developers don't have to choose. But the third dividend is from a performance perspective, if you're a developer that's using both engines and, you're, and you have a mixed workload, then you're trying to move frame buffers back and forth between CPU and GPU, you're kind of constrained both in performance and copying the data back and forth and in the extra energy it takes to copy the data back and forth. So it's a double whammy in a, in a, in a constrained platform. Uh, so unified memory is in a lot of ways a developer's dream. This is super interesting. It's also, it's complicated because it is challenging something that I feel like I've known about for as long as I've known about computers, right? Which is like what memory is and how we think about it. But it does seem, I mean, like with the way that you explain it, it seems incredibly interesting. And I guess, you know, like something that you mentioned iOS devices, you know, like iOS devices have long outperformed like Android devices that claim huge amounts of RAM in them. I imagine it's a similar idea, right? Which is, I, I think it was Craig in the presentation who mentioned the line about like the software and hardware working together and how that's Apple's greatest strength. And it seems like that the M1 is really allowing that better than ever for the Mac. And I guess this is one of those things, right? That comes out of that. Absolutely. I think the metal the, the software team that does the metal uh, uh, API frameworks and the, and the drivers for the GPU. This is, again, th we've been working in concert with those same, that, that team really from the beginning in the, in the iOS chips. And the transition uh, into M1 has really just been a, you know, a long uh, dream come true for, for both our teams. And we think developers are gonna love it. Yeah, the, the, one of the very uh, important points that was made in the keynote is, and, and Craig made this point, is this is the the first time where we've been able to optimize Mac OS for our own silicon, right? And and we also talked about the fact that as we've been designing M1, we've been analyzing and running workloads from Mac OS so it can inform the design. And so this 
unified memory architecture is a perfect example of the synergy of that. So Craig mentioned the fact that, first of all, we use similar data types in Big Sur to make sure that we're not doing, you know, expensive uh, copying and translation of the data. And also we can make more memory available to apps for graphics so that they can run at incredible speeds. So this ability, the strategic advantage we have of designing and building our own hardware and integrating it with our software really, really shines now that we have brought our own silicon architecture to the Mac. Follow-up for that, listener Zach asked, Craig Federighi mentioned that some apps will perform better on the M1, even though they're Intel apps running under Rosetta 2, which is the translation engine, better than they do natively on Intel machines. Now, we, you've mentioned the Metal Team, I think that that's what's going on here, but could you talk a little bit about how it's possible that you're going to have scenarios where software not written for this platform, uh, at least the chip architecture, is actually going to outperform on it? Absolutely. So one of the great stories of the Mac and you know Apple software in general is that we develop these rich set of frameworks for application developers to leverage. So if you're thinking about a typical application uh, that you know, especially something that's using Metal. Well, Metal is actually, uh, if they're calling into the Metal framework, that is native, that is native code. Though their application might be an Intel native code base, when they make that framework call, it calls into the operating system and it's taken over by the, the native Metal code. Now, if it's a Metal app, it's probably using the GPU. You know, it doesn't take much time spent on a 5x faster GPU for you to accelerate an application that's depending on GPU uh, performance. So there's another uh, explanation for why, though on the surface it might seem surprising, you can kind of get your head around, ah, I see what, I see how this is, is happening. And the third, just, just to be clear, Rosetta 2 is, is, is really something special. This is a tool that uh, we developed starting in my group, uh, just at the same time we started thinking about this transition just to make sure. And we, and, and we developed really, really something special from a translation perspective. It shares the name with Rosetta One. Uh, it's a complete rewrite uh, from scratch, uh, focused on this transition. And we, th we're just, we couldn't be happier with how well it's performing. So it's quite good, even for, even for code that isn't running through the, the frameworks. When it comes to apps on M1, along with Big Sur, one of the things that I'm really excited about is iOS apps running on the Mac. Kind of wanted to get a little bit of discussion about that. Like, how how are these apps running? Uh, what kind of experience can people see? Um, I just wanted to kind of get your feelings on that a little bit because I know it's something that I and many of our listeners are really excited to try out. Yeah, this is one of the great features that every Mac with M1 will will get, and that's the ability to run unmodified iPhone and iPad apps, right? So this is the great benefit of having this scalable architecture that we bring over from our iOS devices to the Mac. And so customers will be able to simply uh, go to the Mac App Store and uh, you know search for uh, their favorite app. And if the developer has agreed to let it be available on the Mac App Store, they just download it and it runs and away they go. And so it is going to open up, you know, hundreds of thousands of apps to our Mac users uh, on day one. And uh, it means that a 
Mac with M1 is going to be able to run, you know, a wider variety of software than than any Mac ever. I think the translation of some of these apps into the Mac, you know, if you needed the gyro, so obviously there's going to be certain applications that were, you know, we didn't add a bunch of stuff to the Mac as far as I know <laughs> to, to make it, you know, something you could pick up and turn. You know, they've really done a nice job in doing the translation of the touch UI. And I think a lot of the great work we've done on iPad in the last few years has really helped make that um, even, even better. Got a couple of questions from listeners who are concerned about changes to the platform um, going into the new Apple Silicon era. Uh, listener Ben wanted to know about if there is any support or plan for it for virtualizing Windows on Apple Silicon Macs. And Leighton wanted to know about support for uh, eGPUs, external GPUs, because that doesn't seem to be supported in this first round, at least. Things that, you know, Mac users are maybe used to from previous generations. What's the status of these? Virtualization technology is is built in the M1, and, uh, and we've been working closely with Parallels uh, so that they could bring the ability to Mac users to run uh, other environments like Linux and Docker. And so that's one of the foundational uh, features of, of M1 is virtualization. Uh, in terms of Windows, uh, you know, nothing's been, been announced at this point. And in terms of eGPUs, eGPUs uh, are not supported on systems with M1. You know, keep in mind that these systems with M1 are getting a, a massive, massive increase in performance from the incredible GPU that we have in M1, you know, 5x faster on Air, 5x faster on the 13-inch Pro, and 6x faster on Mac Mini. And so um, we think our customers who are using those products are going to see phenomenal um, graphics performance on those systems. We're all using video conferencing more and more and more. Uh, so one of the things that everybody cares about maybe more now than they ever have is their webcam. Um, it doesn't appear that there was any change to the webcam itself, but there was talk uh, in the presentation about some additional work that's been done. What kind of improvements do the laptops see? Um, and is there kind of any reason for the time being why there's been no change to the actual camera hardware? So the 13-inch MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air do have 720p cameras. However, the ISP in the M1 chip does a phenomenal job increasing the quality of the video experience from those cameras. Uh, our, our users are going to see a noticeable difference. Uh, it brings auto white balance and greater dynamic range and face detection and, and, and other things that you're going to see the, the camera's quality on these systems really look great. And, and on the MacBook Air, we want, uh, you know, a little, you even uh, made some changes to the display uh, itself to allow more light uh, to get to, uh, to the sensor in the camera. So um, we think our customers are going to be really delighted with the camera quality in these new systems. Yeah, I think that, that Tom strikes that point. I think the the ability for us to leverage all the work we're doing on the, the, the camera software for, for the ISP and our iOS products is now finally coming to the Mac in full force. This is just going to create uh, the foundation on which we're going to make it even better. But I, I think the, the M1 systems are already going to see a huge uplift from that. So this is obviously step one was said in the event. Step one of a Apple has a two-year process. This is the first set of products, the first processor. There's a lot of runway here. 
What are you most excited about when you think about what Apple Silicon and the M1 and future, you know, the future path this is setting us on is going to bring to the Mac? What makes you excited when you're thinking about, you know, the world we're, we're just entering right now, which is the Apple Silicon Mac world? What, what, you know, what excites you about that? So from the beginning, and we've talked about this relentlessly over the number of years, at Apple, we're all about the user experience, right? And, and that's what's most important to us. And with the advent of Apple Silicon, and in this case, M1 in the Mac, the user experience that our customers are going to have is what we're incredibly excited about. As, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to, first of all, you're going to open, if you have one of the notebooks, you're going to open it and you're going to get instant wake. It's like, wow, just like my iPhone, just like my iPad, boom, it's ready. And then you're going to start noticing how incredibly snappy and fast and fluid it is. You're going to launch an app and bam, it's there. And bam, it's there. You're going to open large apps like Final Cut Pro and it's going to open like instantaneously and you're going to be blown away. You're going to say to yourself, did that really just happen? I'm going to quit it again and I'm going to launch it again. And uh, and you're going to be able to do things on these Macs that you've never even thought you could do before on an Air, on a Mini, on a 13-inch MacBook Pro. So you're going to be blown away with the performance. And then you may use a feature in in, a, in an app like Pixelmator where you can you know sharpen the res resolution uh, of a photo and the neural engine is going to kick in and bam, it's going to happen so fast and you're going to be blown away about how, how fast that that is. And this whole time as you're using your Mac in, it's the Mac that you know and love, but just so much better in every way. And, and the whole time you're, you're using it and experiencing it, you're going to be just so delighted by that. And then at some point you're going to look up to the upper right and you're going to look at your battery indicator and, <laughs> and you're going to go, is something wrong? My, I, I've been using this system for a couple hours now and, and my battery hasn't really even ticked down. And then, and then you're going to each day, you're going to be blown away with, I can't believe I just did that. And I can't believe how much battery life I have this system, this system has. And it, and it just, it's, it's almost like discovering your Mac all over again. It really is. And, and that's what I can't wait for customers to get these um, products in their hands because they're, they're just going to be blown away. I, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the other shout out I would make, you know, and, and we talked a little bit about this in the last time where my brother sort of sent in that trick question. <laughs> my brother and I were hackers on the Apple II early. We, you know, there was that TRS-80 two weeks, but, but we, we put that behind us. But the exciting part for me as a, as a person who's been building into this iOS and just the surprise and delight we've been able to deliver is, well, now we're able to expose some of the cool stuff we're doing to the tinkerers, the hackers, the people. The Mac is this great platform for, for people who are uh, scientists and students and developers who really just want to understand what's going on underneath the hood. And, and now they're going to get access to our neural engine and they're going to be able to do really, really cool, interesting things on that platform that in, in ways that are, are beyond the, the amazing things they're doing on the iOS products. Um, they're going to be able to learn and explore. And that's what, you know, that's one of the other big differences that the Mac has always played for Apple and for the world uh, is that it, is this, this really great hobbyist spirit uh, is there. And now we're going to be able to expose some of this cool stuff to them as well. Uh, I'll give you another. I'll give you another example of of how what what this means. A, a kind of a more personal example. I, I can still remember to this day, and it was a long, long time ago when I got my first Mac, and uh, 
you know, I, I took it up to my room. I was much, much younger than I am today. And I opened it up and uh, I was so blown away by it. I literally pulled an all nighter and use it, use it till the next morning. And that feeling that you get when you first experience that. And, and with the, these Macs with M1, it's the same feeling, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this, this is incredible. I love this thing. And, and I, I'm just so looking forward to people to, to, to get it in their hands because they're going to have the same feeling. And, and that's, what's so exciting. Like, I know that I speak for so many people, our entire audience to say, this is a very exciting thing. And, you know, we, we have an audience of people that are diehard Mac users. And this really feels like something super exciting and new. So we're really excited to see it. Can't wait until we can start using them. And I want to thank you both for the work that you've done in making this happen and also for coming on the show today to share some of these stories of our audience. Thank you so much, guys. Well, this is why we do what we do. It, it is, It is, you know just making our users lives better and just giving them that delight when they use our products. And that's why we do what we do and we work so hard and, and we just hope that they love these uh, systems as much as we do. And, and we're, we're very confident they will. Yeah. And thank you for, thank you for the opportunity to come in and, and talk about it. It's my favorite subject. So. <laughs> Anytime <laughs> to paraphrase Apple, we can't wait to see what you will do next so that you can come back here and talk about that too. <laughs> Okay, we'll make this a regular thing. All right. <laughs> yep, great talking to you guys again. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Look, people on the internet today, they expect a fast experience. It doesn't matter how good your content is, how effective your marketing is to bring them to your site. If it's broken, they're going to leave. With real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance issues affect the experience of your visitors, so you're able to take action before your business is impacted. How people experience your website differs depending on the browser they're using, the device they have, and the platform that they use. So you want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website so you're able to make informed optimizations and deliver a great experience to those who matter most. Trying to like rely on gut instinct for this or to try and like try everything out, test everything out yourself, it just doesn't work. You want Pingdom's real user monitoring. It's an event-based solution built for scalability, meaning that you're able to monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of your historical data and also not breaking the bank in the process. Get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use the code UPGRADE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. That is pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial and the code UPGRADE at checkout to save an amazing 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. Jason Snell. You have all the Macs. I have all the Macs. I've had them for a while. I just, mm-hmm. not to lord it over everybody, but uh, for the last kind of week, I've had a MacBook Air, a MacBook Pro, and a Mac Mini <laughs> surrounding me running M1 chips. I got all the M1 chips everywhere. You did send me a, 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 an iMessage uh, with just a picture of a huge box. Oh, God. Like, oh, man. <laughs> so yep. jealous. So let's review these things. Let's talk about them. I want to get okay. 
probably the most boring part out of the way first, which is just to talk about the hardware real quick, and then we'll sure. dig into what's inside of these machines. Um, do you have any real thoughts on the hardware? I mean, I know they haven't really changed anything, uh, but what are your kind of thoughts about the way these things look, the ports that they have, that kind of stuff? Well, I feel like it is, you could you could call them boring or you could call it reassuring and familiar. Ooh. And I, I think that's what Apple is going for, right? They want to reassure everyone that these are just Macs. Mm-hmm. And so the MacBook Air looks like a MacBook Air. Couldn't tell it apart. The MacBook Pro looks like a MacBook Pro. Couldn't tell it apart. The only way you can tell the Mac Mini apart is it's silver and not space gray, and it only has two instead of four Thunderbolt ports on it. But um, but the laptops are just, they're the same. And that's on purpose, right? Apple has decided with this round not to try and reinvent the personal computer on the outside anyway. Um, and, and I think Apple's goal is that if somebody were to... Um, make a an apple store order or in parts of the world where they could do this go into an apple store and buy a macbook air before christmas bring it home that they would basically not notice mm. that it was using a new chip architecture that most people don't care all they should really care about is the speed and the and the battery life really and even then they probably don't care about speed as much um which means they'll just notice that the battery lasts longer. And I think that's the goal is like, it's, it's just a Mac, but it is better. And otherwise it's exactly the same. So uh, in that way, it's, you know, it's not much of a story. Writing a review about the, these products is fascinating because they mean a lot. And yet a lot of the things that normally are interesting and different about co- new computers are not interesting or different about these. It's clear that the M1 is constrained. It is, you know, we'll get into the details of how fast they are, but they are low-end chips. These are low-end models with low, a low-end chip in them. And and the first Apple Silicon chip we're seeing is the M1. It is the slowest M1, the slowest Apple Silicon chip ever to ever be made <laughs> in a Mac, right? Ever. It will very rapidly be outpaced by other chips. There's no doubt about it, Right. And this is how they've chosen to go out. What gets confusing is, in some ways, these are the fastest Macs ever, <laughs> with some a few exceptions. And so it gets really confusing. It's like, well, they're so limited, but they're, they're, they're so fast. And the answer is, well, yes, the next ones will be even faster. Um, and, and, but this is the new floor. And so they are constrained. It's 8 or 16 gigs of RAM. Like, clearly, this chip can't do more than that. It can't do more than two Thunderbolt ports. It's got two full channel, full speed Thunderbolt ports that it can do. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And then the Mac Mini, they're using um, another means to do HDMI out and uh, two USB-A on top of it. That, But it's limited in that way. It'll only support two displays. So on the Mac Mini, you can do two external displays. And on the laptops, you can do one external display and then the laptop display. Like that's just, that's how they're built. So. In all those ways, um, it's funny because they're familiar, they're low-end, but they feel high-end when you put them in the context of Intel Macs. Uh, they're limited because these are the first models out, and presumably um, they they can handle these limitations, and the future, com- future computers and future Apple Silicon processors won't have those limitations. 
Um, and then the other funny thing about them just in general is that they are all the same. They're not only the same with compared to the look and feel of the previous models, but they're the same with each other. Like performance wise, they really don't differ that much. These are kind of the same computer in a few different wrappers. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of funny really, right? That this high end, low end in the same product is such a strange thing. It's like these are all the most basic Macs that Apple make, but they are absolutely unbelievably powerful <laughs> yeah right and the, that mixture is so strange and that's kind of like the i guess the story behind these macs right yeah yeah it is uh apple had to do it one way or another and they, this is the way that they chose to do it i think it makes sense the first apple silicon mac chip out the door the m1 is you know it, it's kind of a baby step in a way it really is i think based on everything we know the equivalent of the A14X, right? It's mm-hmm. the A- the A12X and Z um, are the chip used in the iPad Pros. And as far as we can tell, this is sort of the descendant of that two chip generations forward. Obviously, Apple has done some additional work knowing that this was going to be used in Macs. There are features that the Mac needs that maybe an iPad doesn't need that they've rolled in here. That's why they've chosen to call it the M1. But if you look at it that way, look at it as kind of the next generation iPad chip, but with some added Mac compatibility. Like we've been saying for a couple of years now, well, obviously you could use an iPad chip in a low end Mac, but what about the higher end Macs? And we can still say that because that's essentially where we are. These are the low end Macs. And if you look at the, the, the benchmark scores and all the different tests and see how fast they are, it's very easy to get uh, caught up in them and say, well, these are high end obviously because they're so much faster than than the other like that macbook air is faster than all the macbook pros that run intel chips so but it's it's still a low end still macbook air right it's still a 999 macbook air that doesn't change it's just that we're in a chip transition for two years and they've started at the low end um and that's exciting because imagine where they go from here they go up (laughs) um but also it's frustrating i get it because we're uh, looking at this new generation and being like, oh, it's only two Thunderbolt ports. And, oh, it's only 16 gigs of RAM and uh, all those things. Or memory, if you want to call it memory, since the memory's all shared now. Unified memory. Uh, unified memory. Although we'll see. We'll see how they approach that going forward, if it's all unified memory or if there are some configurations that aren't in the future. But in these systems, they kept it simple because mm-hmm. they're the first ones. And they, they got them out the door shortly after announcing that they were doing this transition. I think that makes sense. And any more radical changes and and future steps forward, we'll have to wait for 21. Let's talk about performance and let's talk about benchmarks. This is not a thing that we typically would pay any attention to, uh, except when there's, you know, some kind of outlier. Like, I cannot remember ever talking about a new Mac with you and we've spoken about Geekbench numbers. I'm sure it's come up. I'm sure it's come up. But not with the focus that we're going to put on it now. And the reason for that is because these scores are particularly outstanding. So do you want to tell me kind of what is going on? We don't need numbers, but just to stack them up against where they're sitting with other Macs and general competition. There are a couple charts that are in my review that are not... So I did the usual charts with the little green bars for people who see my charts on six colors. Green means Mac. (laughs) 
orange means iPad. Like I have a, there's, there's a system, there's a method to my madness. Um, so there are the green bars that are like, here are these three M1 computers, which are almost identical. Uh, the variance has to do with the variance on the computer. Like if we tested them a thousand times, I think that they would have exactly the same scores. Um, with the exception of the, uh, GPU test on the seven core GPU on the MacBook air, which is, uh, you'll be shocked to discover one eighth slower. It's like seven, seven eighths the speed of the others. Funny that the seven core is literally that much mm-hmm. slower. Like it's just, that's just what it is, which means, it, you know, it's still way, way faster than the other integrated Intel graphics computers that Apple makes or has made. But the other set of charts that I made are these charts about where the M1 fits in the in the existing sort of Mac product line. And I did two of those, uh, single core and multi-core for Geekbench, where I, I went through the Geekbench browser and I found like historic scores for mostly sort of shipping products and then compared them to the M1 Macs. And this is where it gets kind of wild, but I think this also puts them in the best context, which is... The single core Apple, when they announced this product last week, said it's the fastest core in the world, basically, uh, in a computer. And the tests bear that out. The single core score, where you're only running one processor core, is faster on the M1 than any Mac that is made with an Intel chip in it. Now, performance is generally, on an 8-core system, right, performance is not on one core it's on all the cores so this Mm -hmm. is academic in a way although there are inefficient processes that only run on one core and those will run really fast on these but you want to look at the multi-core right because that's where you've got a 28 core uh, mac pro right or an 18 core imac pro and they're so fast because they have so many processor cores to do the work and these m1 macs have eight cores they've got the four efficiency cores and the four performance cores and they can use all eight at a time if they want to and if you look at the Geekbench scores there, this is, I think, the most interesting thing about these computers, which is they are what we thought they would be, by the way. They are faster than any Mac ever made in multi-core performance, with the exception of the Mac Pro, the current Mac Pro, the iMac Pro, so the Xeon processor-based multi-core pro workstation monsters the mac pro and the imac pro and this year's i9 imax the high-end build-to-order configurations of i9 at 8 and 10 cores and last year's i9 imac with i think eight cores so basically those are the only macs that i could find that actually beat the m1 max it's the highest end it's basically all desktop professional Mac. Yeah, right, cuz those high-end iMacs are are essentially the ones that touch the iMac Pro in performance yeah. and that's literally the highest configuration and then you need to spec up the processor even higher <laughs> mm-hmm. to get there. Um and that's it. Like everything else, every MacBook Pro, every other iMac, every other Mac Mini is slower at multi-core performance than the M1 Max. And and keep in mind, these are the low-end Macs. It's unbelievable. I knew they were going to be good. Like, if you draw the chart, like I've done on Six Colors a couple of times, sort of like plotting out A-series performance 
an A series, you know, X yep. performance. It was going to be kind of in this ballpark, but that's one, it's one thing to see that and be like, yes. oh, theoretically they could do this. And it's another thing to see them land it and land it where they did, yep. where a 999 MacBook Air is for most t- tasks faster than any Mac ever made that isn't a Mac Pro or an iMac Pro. Well, let's talk about that though, because you say it's it's one thing to think it, it's one thing to see the benchmark scores, but it's a whole other thing to see the performance doing tasks that you do on a computer, right? Because sure. scores scores don't mean anything, right? Like, yes, I have no it, context. Exactly. So, what is what have you been able to do? How has it performed, and how has it performed against? Not only just old Macs, but the three Macs, the three M1 Macs, how have they performed against each other? Well, against each other, they're almost identical. I mean, that's the the bottom line, other than the graphics part. And the battery is less in the in the MacBook Air than in the MacBook Pro. And that does show up in, in I did a battery test. And the, definitely the MacBook Pro is better, <laughs> has a better battery. It's pretty simple. Um, but what I tried to do is some tasks that would show off um, this power in kind of conditions you would actually do, right? Because a benchmark chart isn't isn't doing work. It's trying to simulate doing work. So um, for the 20 Max for 2020 series, I've been uh, editing all of those in Final Cut Pro. And there was a new Final Cut Pro update for Apple Silicon last week that I downloaded and I used to edit this week's 20 Max for 2020 video, which... Is from a new batch that Steven and I shot. We shot our last batch of those for the top six. We shot them in 4K. He shot his in 4K HDR, um, which you know we talked about earlier. You said how great the HDR video was, and I'll just say, um, matching HDR video to non-HDR video is is not fun. Yeah, that that's a pain, and I understand that the idea of like the new, uh, you know, it can be difficult to take the HDR video from iPhones and and uh edit them into non-HDR purposes, but most people yeah. are not doing that. No, exactly right. Yeah. I I just I, it's a lesson that I learned. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's yeah. it's 4 it's 4K video that we've yeah. that we've got. And I've been editing these videos on my iMac Pro, and some of them not even 4K, some of them just 1080, but uh, I think the last one I shot in 1080 and Steven shot in 4K. So his file was 4K. And I had to make pro- a proxy workflow where I re-encoded that, those videos at a lower resolution and edited using the lower resolution because otherwise I got way too many hiccups when I was right. editing on my iMac Pro. It just couldn't handle the file size, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just like that's it's it's a lot of data and it has to decode the the video and it was too much. So I I stepped down the quality essentially. So on the Mac Mini, I uh I brought my project over and I set it to use the um, non-optimized full resolution files and even the setting that was a better quality instead of better performance to have them have the video look crystal clear while I was editing it. And I never had a hiccup, not one, the whole time. And that was that moment where I thought, oh, this little Mac Mini that costs uh, whatever, $699. I'm not sure which configuration I have. I'll have to look that up. But Let's just say it was $750, right? Let's just sure. yeah, pluck a number out. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It, it, it did all these things that the, uh, the $5,000 iMac Pro from three years ago behind me uh, couldn't, 
It's handle. unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because, yeah. right, what you are doing there is exactly what the iMac Pro is made for, right? I know. Yeah. That was two streams of 4K video, yeah. and it didn't flinch. It was not a problem. Oh, God. And uh, so I did that. I also did a video in code where I took mm-hmm. an Apple uh, ProRes file of one, of actually that episode of 20 Max or 2020 video. And I encoded that. I used I used, just used QuickTime to encode an H.264 1080 version of it. Yep. And again, you know, it's an eight-core iMac Pro. It's good at this. And it was about 10 seconds slower at it than the other systems. And again, it's not a lot, but the fact that they're even in the ballpark of the eight, my eight core now deprecated, but eight core iMac Pro Mm -hmm. is ridiculous because these are low end systems. Um, Another test that I hear, because we know a lot of developers is Xcode compile. Yes. And I did an Xcode compile. Our, our friend James Thompson sent me the source code to Dice by Pcalc. Mm-hmm. It's very nice of him to trust me not to sell that on the black market. Um, but I ran an Xcode archive where it's basically building everything that it needs to build for a project. And people complain a lot about how slow Xcode is at compiling software. And, you know, it's another one of those cases where compared to so they did that job in about a little less than 30 seconds. My iMac Pro did it in 42 seconds, which is really fitting given that it's James Thompson. Yeah. Um the 2020 high-end 13-inch MacBook Pro, the you know, the 13-inch that they released earlier this year um uh, with four ports, uh 51 seconds. And I think that that says it all, right? This year's top of the line 13-inch MacBook Pro Intel system was almost twice as long to do it not quite Mm. but in that ballpark and i i i can't tell you how impressive that is like that's that's huge like if you bought a 13 inch high-end macbook pro earlier this year thinking you know this is really this is really great i mean it is it's it's fine but that macbook air outdid it by a lot and that's that's the story right like across anything that that you need that kind of performance obviously if you're just editing text or doing microsoft word or something like that or working with graphics you're not necessarily going to notice it you're going to notice places where it used to stutter a little that it doesn't or that there used to be a pause that there now isn't but when you're using it for like these higher end things it's just a lot faster than computers that you know by all accounts in the past should have beaten the pants off of these little low-end Macs, and they just, they don't. Um, This is the new, in fact, I'm starting to wonder if we need to redefine what a low-end task is, because obviously a MacBook Air can handle, and a a 699 Mac Mini can handle editing, you know, multiple 4K video streams. So is that a low-end task now? Probably not, but that's the kind of thing you need to do to stress these things out. So it makes the Mac Mini a kind of a weird outlier to me because all right so the macbook pro it's the clues in the name it's a machine for professionals do your professional work here and now that professional machine can do these tasks so much more efficiently than ever before and the macbook air is typically a machine for the majority of people i mean I'm, i'm sure lots of macbook airs use photoshop for example which i'm sure will run much nicer when when adobe um 
put the version of Photoshop out there that is native for the M1. But the MacBook Air benefits from much greater battery life, which is something that people, all MacBook Air users will benefit from. But like the Mac Mini is in this weird spot, right? Where it's not really a professional machine, neither does it have to worry about battery life. It's like it is in this peculiar, like in the middle spot here with with kind of what we expect of it where these other two machines the two laptops maybe are more catered to this particular benefits uh when you think about where it lives in the the overall lineup it's just kind of like a funny little anomaly it's gonna work its way out right like yes eventually apple will once the transition is over i think you'll look at the product line and it'll make more sense than it does now but yes yeah. this is another one of those leaps where it used to be you said oh well you need a pro laptop to do that work and there'll be new work you know apple was talking about like 8k video and so like like there will always be new high-end work that uh the low-end systems aren't going to be able to accomplish but the story of computing over the last couple of decades uh, you know even longer three or four decades is always there's this task that is impossible to perform and then it's only possible to perform it on a high-end system and then you just wait long enough and it's possible to do it on a low-end system and you know right but isn't it wild that apple is the company that's first to being able to produce the machines that can run this future work whatever it is that doesn't seem like the normal way that things have been done well the the overarching story of the m1 and of the intel to apple silicon transition in general is going to be that apple came up through the you know from the streets and by that i mean the mean streets of smartphone development where every bit of processing power and every bit of energy savings was vitally important and they're trying to make the iphone and the ipad as successful as possible through their own chips and like that's that's tough Mm -hmm. and you get to the end of that story and you've got something really remarkable that you could apply to the mac and see huge benefits so if you've been following apple's story it actually does kind of make sense but um from the you you know it's a it's a an advantage that came from the other side of the of the of the street basically from the the mobile side and now is being applied to the mac because apple's done such a good job with their chips on the other side that they've rocketed past where intel was on this side and I feel like I mentioned this in my review. I feel like that moment uh, at that Brooklyn event in 2018, where they started boasting about how the iPad Pro was faster than most PC laptops, that was the clear moment where we all went, "Oh, that, that they're doing this." Because like if they've reached the point where they can compare themselves to Intel's processors um, favorably, then it's only a matter of time before they just replace Intel's processors, and that's where we are. Unified memory, I think, is something that, I mean, you know, we got so many questions about it, and we asked Tim and Tom a little bit about it too, but Uh I think this is something that a lot of our audience is really getting hung up on. I know that it might be too difficult to tell right now with just a week's worth of usage, but did you come across any scenario where you felt the machine struggling in a way that you could attribute it to differences in RAM? I, I haven't. I think this is one of those things that's very hard to detect. Um, I haven't noticed anything like that. Um, I'm sure that there are people who load enormous files into memory who are going to be curious about it. I would say that the combination of having um, 
this memory, which is very fast and, you know, and doesn't have to do some of the tricks that you do when the, the memory yep. is off the, off the die, off of the package. Um, also the, you know, the SSD speed, a lot of times I hear people complain about, um, running out of Ram, um, who are using like traditional hard drives instead of SSD. Like it's easier to page out to SSD. It's not the same, but it's better. Um, I am sure there are workflows and people who use huge amounts of RAM who will look at these systems at 16 and will run into some walls and say, oh, this is frustrating. And to, to them, I would say, um, yeah, there there will be pro systems later, <laughs> clearly, that will support more more memory than this. But I never ran into any of those things. I wasn't, I did not open gigantic image files that I don't quite frankly, I don't have. I did not run, you know, 15 different apps and have a bunch of tabs open. I haven't done any of that. So I, I, and so I can't say on that side, all I'll say is that I think for most regular use, especially given that these are essentially low end systems, 16, you know, did I detect a difference between eight and 16? I didn't, but I still bought a MacBook air with 16 because I felt like that was uh, something I wanted to do just because I do use, my Mac for some more serious stuff, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I didn't run into anything. It's very hard to do that. And honestly, I'm probably not, I'm, I'm probably not the best person. I'm not somebody who leaves a million tabs open. I'm not somebody who works with enormous image files. I've never, it's very rare that I run into a moment. It does happen occasionally, but it's very rare that I run to a moment where I think, Oh no, I've run out of Ram. Um, and now everything is slow. It, it doesn't happen very often. And I haven't been able to coax these systems into doing that. I think that that specific thing that with the with the unit differences between the unified memory and the RAM and and how that's going to shake out, that's going to I think that's going to take a while and it's going to take people sharing very specific use cases for us to right. be able to see it. Right, we're gonna we're gonna see the edges because people are gonna push yeah. these things. But I will say, yeah. if you're somebody who never ever 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 buys a Mac with less than 32 gigs of RAM, wait. At yes. least wait until your colleagues who are more um, uh, on the cutting edge than you dive into these things and say, oh, it's actually not so bad. Or, oh, yeah, this doesn't work and, and find out what they say. Mm-hmm. Or if failing that, wait until the next ones, which will presumably have a higher uh, RAM limit. That That's what I would say. Um, th- these, I would not bet against these things surprising you, yep. but also they are low end systems. Uh, that said, it other than other than waiting because I know there's something better coming along because there always is, but there definitely is this time. I was thinking today about how if I really wanted to maximize the efficiency of my workflows, I would be better off using the Mac Mini than my iMac Pro because it's faster. <laughs> uh, what about battery life? I only had a chance to do one test and, you know, battery life is so variable because the fact is mostly what we use our laptops for is a lot of stuff and there are quiet times and there are more intense times and it depends on what set of apps you're using and what kind of data you're processing. And like, there's so many things there that, that it's unique. You can't really measure like one person's battery life. 
That said, I wanted to sort of check Apple and check Apple's work because Apple makes these big claims. And, you know, they, they their video playback claim is based on video playing in the TV app. My guess is that it's the most optimized experience, right? Because Apple controls the app and has probably updated the TV app to use all of the decoders that are in the M1. And like, it's perfect, right? Um, And what I did was open a Safari window and stream video. I streamed it from Plex, but, you know, basically web streaming video in a browser window. And the MacBook Air lasted for nine and a half hours which I will tell you is a lot (laughs) for a MacBook Air. It just kept going. And I got 13 hours and 15 minutes out of the MacBook Pro. So these are numbers that are smaller than Apple's quoted numbers, but I would say suggest that Apple is not wrong when it says these things have long battery life, Uh, but exactly how much battery life it will be in the way that you use it. Like how long is it if you are intensely editing 4K video the whole time? Uh, How long is it going to last? I didn't test that. I don't know. My guess is a lot less than nine and a half hours, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's still probably a lot more than the last generation would be. But battery life is very hard to test and I, I have not had enough time to do. It would literally have taken all my time just to run battery tests and I have to run other tests and write a whole review. So that's all I got. Yeah, because again, like, you know, like people could say like, hang on a minute, they said it was 17 hours for video or, or whatever, yeah. but it's what type of video did they do? news you know and apple is quoting the tests that best benefit apple yeah right they're not i said this last week they're not lying but did their video test happen in their app that has been written has been updated to perform the best and be the most efficient on m1 of course that's why they quoted that one if they if they quoted Netflix in a browser window, they probably tested that and they're like, oh, this isn't as good. This is only 13 hours and we got 20 hours for the other one. So let's say 20, which is fine. I mean, it's the same battery. <laughs> it's just that every use case is going to be different. But I, I will say as somebody who has used a MacBook Air a lot and um, we have lots of MacBook Airs in my house, nine and a half hours of playing movies on Plex throughout a whole day. Um, it's pretty good. That's pretty impressive. I, I do think that this is, depending on the workload, it's going to vary, but like this is the kind of computer where you're going to sweat the battery a lot less. All right, this episode is brought to you by Remote Works, a podcast that tells extraordinary stories of teams that have made the shift to working remotely. On this season, you'll hear how the pandemic didn't slow down Aston Martin Red Bull racing drivers and their teams which I'm very excited to hear that episode personally, how two women working in a tiny trapper's cabin in the Arctic are dodging polar bears while fighting climate change, and digital nomads working from the beach in Barbados, Bali, and beyond. But it's not just stories about remote work. Every episode is full of insight and advice that you can apply to your work and your team. Distributed work brings challenges, but it also brings opportunity. That's what Remote Works is all about, helping you find new ways to work, collaborate, and discover new possibilities. I got a sneak peek. I got a sneak peek of season uh, two of Remote Works, and the episode that I listened to was the one about the two women in the trapper's cabin in the Arctic. They're in uh, Arctic Norway, and it's this is a beautifully produced episode. It has really great sound effects and music, helping to really like tell the story, and it really brings it to life. And some of these stories are absolutely wild, like how if you're remote enough, 
you could encounter a polar bear in your workday. And that's what happens to these people. It touches on how organization in your workspace is super important, especially if you inhabit a 200 square foot building in Arctic Norway. The interesting stories are right here in this show, showing how remote work challenges can affect you no matter who you are, but it's still the same kind of challenges that we'll all come into on a daily basis. Search for Remote Works anywhere that you listen to podcasts and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Remote Works for their support of this show and Relay FM. Okay, so we've spoken about how the machines look and how they perform, but there are apps that run on these machines. Now, we've spoken about the most optimized applications, right? We've spoken about Apple's apps, you know, talking about Final Cut and stuff like that. What about apps in Rosetta 2? What are they like to use? How do they launch? What is the experience like? Well, the first time you launch them, um, it will say, would you like to install Rosetta 2? And then you have to say yes, and then it installs Rosetta 2. And I think that's interesting that there's a little bit of a gap there where they want to... Is that the first time for every app or just the first time? No. Okay. The first time you launch a non-universal app... That's what they that's what they do. Hmm. And then they launch and it's fine. But they, they make you go through that one that one little extra step. And then okay. after that, it's just apps. And they're they're a little bit slower. I mean, it it's gonna vary. So what it's doing as far as I can tell is it's 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 caching like common commands mm-hmm. essentially. And so if your if the app is really repetitive and it only really does the same thing, it's gonna be a lot faster. And if it's really sort of having to change based on big data sets and stuff like that, it's going to be a little bit slower. But still, you know, I, I managed to run the Intel test on Geekbench and like the Intel benchmark test was still faster than like the previous MacBook Air and the previous 13 inch, the four port 13 inch. So like it's fast. It's It's going to vary, but it's fast. I didn't find... Uh, that I was frustrated. I'm sure, again, if you're running an app that's not native, that requires every ounce of CPU that it, that you can possibly give it, that it's going to slow it down. But keeping in mind that you're coming from a system, presumably, that was much slower, you're going to pick up some of that. So like if you're going, if you're running a non-native app and you're coming from a two or three-year-old MacBook Air, I would wager it will probably be the same speed or faster. But it's going to vary. Um, what I would say is, don't sweat Rosetta because I think Rosetta just works and it works fine. And yep. in most use cases, it's not going to matter. I also used it with command line stuff. I've got a couple of command line utilities that are compiled for Intel, obviously, that I use for like audio stuff. And uh, they all just work because Rosetta. So it's just, uh, it's pretty transparent. There, there are edges like uh, Homebrew, where people can like download and compile and build all sorts of command line apps. Homebrew, first off, it doesn't really work on Big Sur, and they're they're working out how to handle two different processor architectures, and like it's going to take a while for stuff like that to clear up. But for the regular person, it's just you know you take that old app and you double click it, and it launches and it's fine. Have you encountered anything that doesn't work? Like at all? Not that I can think of. Like I said, Homebrew is a good example where that is still in this process of them updating yep. it. And I think that there are going to be some things like that that are really on the on the edge. And then I guess like any like virtualization, virtualization yeah, they, uh, yeah. is a thing that is still uh, to come, although they have shown it and talked about it. And there's definitely going to be parallels in VMware Fusion in Apple Silicon. 
The question is, what are they emulating? And right now, all they've ever shown is they're emulating um, Linux, I think, in a virtual machine. I don't think they're even emulating it. They're virtualizing a an ARM build of uh, of a Linux operating system. So it, it remains to be seen. Like I feel like Apple's playing a little coy now about Microsoft. I, I, I'm still a believer that Windows running on Apple Silicon systems is going to happen. Not sure it'll happen on the M1, but I feel like everybody is inclined to make that work, right? Like, like the challenge is, do you want to emulate Intel Windows, which is going to be slow as anybody who used soft Windows or virtual PC on PowerPC Max will tell you. Um, and then in the long run, can Apple and Microsoft work together so that they might be able to virtualize Windows for ARM, which would run at full speed? Yeah. And I feel like they will. Windows for ARM exists, in case people don't know that. It is yeah. a thing that exists. It's, uh, I think, inevitable. I, I really do. I don't think that this is a case. People want to make drama about it and all that. But like, not only is Microsoft Office like in beta with native versions for Apple Silicon now, mm-hmm. but like Microsoft knows that Apple's platforms are a place for them to pick up more customers and that some of their customers who use Windows also want to use Mac. And they've had those customers for 15 years straddling those two platforms and they would probably like to let them continue and while i'm not sure i think we'll ever see boot camp although that's possible but i doubt it at least for a long time okay at least for a while but like within a virtualization system like parallels of vmware um I, yeah i think it's going to happen i just i don't know the time frame and i don't know what all the technical hurdles will be and what microsoft's priorities are but i think that's an almost inevitable like i think microsoft wants it i think apple wants it i do think it will happen but it's not today right like if you're if you're relying on boot camp or relying on running windows in a virtual machine at near native speeds do not buy apple silicon like that's a simple one i'm nervous to ask this okay what are ios apps like on the mac (laughs) So you get them by searching and then toggling over to like iOS from Mac, which is the default search. Or if you look in your purchased list, you can also click on iOS and then it shows you your purchased iOS. Mm -hmm. There are a few things going on here. So first off, developers can opt out. So most of the apps I looked for the first time I got on one of these systems and the app store had been turned on for iOS stuff. Almost every app I looked for is just not there. Hmm. Like what? What were you looking for? So Ferrite, right? the audio editor that I love on the iPad, mm-hmm. it's not there because the developer has opted out. You know, uh, Netflix <laughs> is a good example. When, when they, they highlight HBO Max, that is a strong suggestion that Netflix is not there. Mm-hmm. And that's an example. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why? You can just run Netflix in the browser. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to. I'd rather run it in the Netflix app, which is nice yeah. and is in its own app. Yeah. And I don't know whether some of that is like paranoia on Netflix's part that it's going to lead to piracy or something like that, which is dumb because there's piracy anyway and I'm not sure in the browser is any different. But like that that's a little frustrating to me that, that there aren't more video apps available and some of the productivity apps that I was looking for aren't there. So you end up with some games, which are nice, like all of all the games like Flip Flop and Really Bad Chess, all the Zach Gage games mm-hmm. are there. And that's great because they weren't on the Mac before, right? 
And I think that's maybe what Apple is really focusing on is is getting a bunch of games that are just not on the Mac on the Mac. But when I was looking at productivity stuff, like, yes, um, Timery is there. Hooray. At least last time I checked. But, like, a bunch of apps that I like are not there. And that bothers me, right? Because it's, it's, it's the developer's decision, of course. But I wonder, like, are you not there because you just don't want to be on the Mac? Or are you not there because you're working on something? Because I, I do think... Oddly, I do think that this is going to maybe give developers more of a reason to embrace Catalyst because they're going to look at how their app runs on the Mac and think that's not good enough. And and maybe we need to add some stuff in to make it more Mac-like and that leads down a path to Catalyst. It also maybe improves their iPad version. So that's all, that's all up in the air and it, it took the, some of the wind out of my sails to find out that a lot of the apps that I was kind of interested in seeing how they worked on the Mac just don't work on the Mac, they, that they've been opted out. I could imagine a lot of developers wanted to wait until they actually got one as well. It could be. It could be. I, I'm concerned that like Netflix was just saying, well, forget, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> forget it. We don't want to do that. But like HBO Max, uh, I tried to do full screen. It doesn't do full screen. <laughs> I tried to resize the window. I'm actually trying that right now. It doesn't resize the window. So you get like a single size sort of a window with a movie playing in it. It's just, I don't, why? <laughs> why Why would you do that? So that that's frustrating. The ones that do work. Um, games, I've had some issues. Like I downloaded Flip Flop Solitaire and it shows up in like one orientation and it cover it's covered by the dock at the bottom. <laughs> And I can't resize it. So I have to hide the dock in order to get it to show up like the part where the cards are, which is kind of important. Can you not full screen it? If I hit the full screen, oh, this is great. If I hit the full screen, it changes orientation into a better orientation, which is uh, landscape. Hmm. And then I can play it. Oh, that's better. But when it opens, it opens in portrait and, it, and it's under the dock. And uh, I would argue that the full screen widget is not made for changing orientation that's weird there's just it's a lot of that a lot of that stuff is weird there's this whole touch alternatives mode which is like i don't fully understand it but like there's a there's a second mode that makes the changes how the app behaves in order to better emulate a touch experience and then you have to like use the trackpad or hold down the option key to like essentially emulate uh touches on the screen and if you turn that mode on a bunch of other things turn off and break so don't <laughs> so don't turn it on so i use twitterific which is an app i wanted to try out because i use it on the mac all the time and i started using it and i was like why is it not working right it's it's the keyboard shortcuts aren't working and i can't scroll right and all that and it turns out i had touch alternatives turned on and then i turned it off and it's like oh now it scrolls fine. Now it's got all of the same keyboard mm. shortcuts that it had on the iPad, and they're taking advantage of all of those all of those features that they made available on the iPad. Um, so there's a lot to learn as a user, and I think developers have a lot to learn. And I guess what I would say is it's it's really early days for yeah. iOS apps yeah. on the Mac, and you're probably going to be disappointed that some of the apps that you wanted to see aren't there um some of the apps you see are going to work great (laughs) some of them are going to work less than great 
some games will probably be good. Uh, some things you'll get frustrated by because they have a Mac version and an iPad version, and you bought the iPad version, you don't get the Mac version. <laughs> Buy it again, I guess. So so they've taken those out of the store. So there's going to be indications. You know, it's going to be a rough ride, I think. I think this is the, the place where it's untested. Developers are going to have to learn about it. I My hope is that it drives people who are developers to make their Mac apps better and maybe support Catalyst and get them... Uh, to be a little bit better because like even a really good iPad app running on Apple Silicon, like Twitterific's got all the keyboard shortcuts, but it doesn't have any menus, right? Like, cause it's not, it has no menus on iOS. I expect we're going to see a big take up in catalyst post Apple Silicon. Max. I think some, you know, some developers are going to just not bother and they're going to take their apps out of the store and they're sure. like we're not going to play that game. Use the use the web browser or whatever. But I do think you're right. I think some developers are going to look at their apps on the Mac and be like, "Oh, we can make this better," right? And that's what Catalyst is meant to do. In fact, looking through what we see now, I would say maybe this is what Catalyst was really meant to do all along, which is have you run iOS apps on the Mac and then make them look more like Mac apps, right? Like because now you can see with an app that is not running Catalyst, really, it's just stock loaded from the app store off of an iPad. You look at it and you're like, this could really use some uh, fit and finish from the Mac. That's what Catalyst is, right? That's literally what Catalyst is. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. And uh, yeah, it's weird, but it's got potential. It's going to take a while to shake out. And people should prepare to be a little disappointed when some of the apps that they're kind of hoping will run on their Mac may not be there. And if they are there, they may not work like you're hoping they will. But I do think in the long run, opening up the app store and getting those apps on the Mac is going to be a good thing. It's just, it may take a little while. Yeah. I think there still remains something that I'm really interested by because there aren't a lot of apps that I want, but there are apps that I do want. And the reason I want them is because there is not a good Mac app for it. Right. And I still believe a kind of wonky iOS app is better than no app, right? Uh, or a very bad Mac app. Like, for example, you mentioned Timery, which is uh, the time tracking app that I love. You sent me a screenshot of that, uh, yeah. that it's there in the App Store. And that's one that I really want because the Toggle, which is the service that I use, their Mac app is garbage. And so even if timery only kind of works i know i'm going to be happier than, than what i got but the stuff that's you know there's no shortcuts for the mac right and so like i wonder right. how that's going to affect my experience and i think that you're right i think that there might be things that developers see and then like oh you know what if i make this change to my ios app it will actually impact the way that it works on the mac here and stuff like that like i think this is going to be a thing that's going to take a little bit of time to shake out and it's also going to take a lot of time to test, you know, like over the next few weeks to see how these things operate. I still remain excited about it. I lowered my expectations when I heard about how you get these apps, right? So that you mentioned how they're downloaded and, and I'd heard that last week, that it's like a very conscious choice you have to make to get one. Right, like you go to the app store and you hit the toggle, or you go to the purchases thing, and you choose. It's like mm, that's not as front and center as I was expecting, and and that would indicate to me, I mean, that along with the fact that Apple haven't really 
shown these things off in running in any way. It's just like, right. here's a picture of a iOS app. Kind of made me feel like, okay, this is very 1.0 and is a thing they're doing because they can do and is hopefully another kind of carrot on the stick for developers to take advantage of Apple's tools that are meant to generate better cross-party, uh, cross-platform applications. So I'm just hoping that this is just like another step in that kind of uh, larger push of making applications that work and run great everywhere. Also, this just in for people who are looking for this, I believe Twitterific, which I described, which actually is is in better shape on, on macOS with Apple Silicon than I thought, uh, appears to have been removed from the Mac App Store Oopsies. on iOS. So they seem to have uh, opted out just a little bit later, but I got it. You can't take this away from me. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what that means either. So we'll see. It's just, it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be like that where you're going to have apps that like the developers like, oh, what? We're where? No, take that down. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's honestly, that was my first disappointment with this whole thing was just a lot of the apps that I thought would be there aren't there because the developers have opted out. And uh, they probably have good reasons for it. I get it. But it's also disappointing when it might have been good enough for me, but it's not good enough for them. Um, I hope that's what it is and not just, let's just pull it and not be there on the Mac. That would be, that would make me sad. But I can't explain HBO Max though. I can't explain that there's a video app that can't go full screen as far as I can tell and that can't be resized. And I don't know why that app exists uh, other than for Apple to point to a video app. But anyway, to wrap this up, overall, how does this first set of M-chip Macs make you feel about the future of the Mac platform? I think the future of the Mac is really bright. I think that Apple is going to be able to dominate um, PC performance at a bunch of levels in a way that they've dominated smartphone and tablet performance. I think that there are long-term questions about the highest of the high end, but... um, we're going to have to see, like, this is the famous, what is an Apple Silicon Mac Pro and how does that work? And what does that product look like? And who is it for? And we also have to see the mid-range, right? We need to see what an iMac looks like and what a uh, higher-end MacBook Pro looks like. And we don't have the answers to those questions either. But I think that this is, given how impressive these are as low-end systems, that the future is incredibly bright, but there's still work to do. Like, I I do think that it's a real question about how is Apple's architecture going to handle, you know, are they going to scale up their GPU? Are they going to do discrete graphics? How do they do expansion cards in a Mac Pro? Is that a thing they're going to do? Are they going to leave pros behind or are they going to cater to the pros? My gut feeling is they will cater to the pros and give them what they want because that's why they embarked on the whole Mac Pro thing in the first place. So, um, and, and it also, as we mentioned earlier, sets Apple up to be more innovative with its hardware in the future. Now that it's got this platform, we may see touchscreen Macs. We may see, you know, Mac laptops that are convertible and turn into things that are more like iPads and then back into laptops again, which is not a, a design that Apple has experimented with before. We may see an iMac that also supports touch or supports Apple Pencil and is more like a Surface Studio. There are lots of things we have an opportunity to see in the Mac that maybe we didn't have before. Um, And I don't believe that it's going to be a case where Apple 
rests on its laurels and gets surpassed by other chip makers just because it's in Apple's best interests to keep this whole architecture moving forward for the iPhone and the iPad as well as the Mac. And they all, you know, the Mac is, the processor inside the Mac is now central to Apple's strategy, whereas the Intel processors were not remotely central to Apple's strategy. And when you're a company that is making unified products that are software and hardware and all the process of, all the product of your process, um, you can get better products. Apple has showed that on the iOS side for a while now, and now the Mac gets to do that too. So I think it's I think it's really exciting. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by DoorDash. You've got so much in your to-do list. Your laundry, your emails, your errands, who knows what else. Give yourself one less thing to worry about and let DoorDash take care of your next meal. DoorDash is the app that brings the food that you're craving right now right to your door. Ordering is easy. You just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with their contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Wendy's, Chipotle, the Cheesecake Factory, and so many, many more. Listeners of this show can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code UPGRADE. Jason, can you talk about your experiences with DoorDash a little bit for our listeners so they can know how great it's going to be? Well, my favorite thing is to order things in advance when you're not hungry and, you know, because when you're hungry and you're ordering food, you make things, you make mistakes. You make Mm -hmm. mistakes that you'll regret later. So what you do is when you know you're going to be eating out that night, if you if you know it in advance, you can place a DoorDash order then. You can tell them when to deliver it later. You can do it. You set it and forget it. And then um, right when it's the time that you picked, there's a knock on your door. Uh, generally, they do a uh, contact list. So there's a knock on the door and they leave it there and, and then uh, they scurry away and your food is there. So I like it for that. Um, and lots of my local restaurants support uh, DoorDash. So it's fairly easy to just go on to their website and uh, pick the food I want, set a time, and then it just magically appears. It's great. So to get $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order, download the DoorDash app in the App Store and use the code UPGRADE. That's UPGRADE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Go download the app now. Our thanks to DoorDash for their support of UPGRADE and all of Relay FM. Jason Snell, should we finish out today's episode with some hashtag AskUpgrade questions? Andrew asks, do you think that space gray or other colors will come back to the Mac Mini when Apple silicon chips are available in high-end configurations? Maybe it's like a Mac Mini Pro or something like that. Um, so, okay. So last week, apparently, I, I was skeptical about whether there would be other Mac Minis. I don't actually remember saying that but i did listen to connected last week where steven said i know jason says that there's not going to be any other mac minis but i don't think he's right and i was like how one how dare you and two i agree with you so (laughs) if i said that i'm gonna recant it now and agree with steven which is i think that the fact that the intel mac mini remains in the product line because the m1 mac mini only supports uh, you know up to 16 gigs of ram and only has the two thunderbolt ports i in every instance where apple has a has left an intel product behind i think that's a sign that apple doesn't think they've got a product to replace that product so like there's still the four port 13 inch macbook pro there's still the space gray four thunderbolt port 
Mac Mini, right? Like all of those still are there. So the answer is um, yes. I suspect that at some point there will be a pro-ish Mac Mini again. When remains to be seen. Is it in the in the spring or summer where they do a potentially modified M1 chip that enables higher end, you know, sort of mid-range uh, Macs? Is it next year sometime, in the next cycle, an M2 of some form that has more features and they do that and roll out a Mac Mini? But I, I now would say it's more likely than not that they will have a more capable Mac Mini at some point because that's why that Intel Mac Mini is still there. And would they choose to have that be a space gray instead of a, a silver? Maybe so. That might be the, the tell there. So... Um, and I like that because remember one of the criticisms of the Intel Mac mini when it got, um, uh, updated last time was it was too expensive. And that's because Apple really sold it as being this product for pros and that like a lot of pro environments, people wanted more power in the Mac mini and they wanted to give that to give that to them, which is great. Except the other part of the market is mad <laughs> because the Mac mini used to be more affordable. So I wonder if this is where they're heading, which is now they've made a Mac mini that's more of a truly low-end Mac mini um, using Apple Silicon and in silver. And it leaves open the space to do a more capable Mac mini, maybe in space gray down the road. And uh, I I would be surprised if the Mac mini didn't end up with a more capable Apple Silicon version eventually. Uh, I go back and forth on this a little bit. Because that, like, professional Mac Mini only really existed because they had a hole to fill that might not be a hole in the future. So, like, depending on what the iMacs look like, depending on if the Mac Pro changes, you know, like, they they could bring the the starting price down a bit, they might not need that Mac Mini Pro anymore. The Mark Gurman report about the... exactly smaller mac pro right they might not need a a pro level mac mini i still feel like yeah something has to replace that higher end mac mini and it might not be a mac mini um that's true that's true that that is um one of the uncertainties here it could be that really the mac mini becomes what it has always been a game which is the entry mac right the switches mac is like this is a thing that exists or for people that you know have interesting use cases and that we still have a desktop professional machine, but it's more like what it used to be, which was the, the the Mac Pro wasn't cheap to get into, but it was much cheaper than it is now. And I could imagine it going that way. Like I think there will be something on a higher-end configuration for a lower starting price, could be a Mac Mini, might not be the Mac Mini. We've only ever had the thought of a professional Mac Mini once, which the is one the current time, yeah. one. And our needs were served by other products before that. So we'll see. Brian asks, the Air, the new MacBook Air does not have a fan. The MacBook Pro does. Do you think there will be thermal issues in the future with the Air? Could you give specific use cases in which a user might consider the Pro rather than the Air? Well, it's hard to say, um, but my guess is that Apple, like Apple makes the chip and Apple makes the computer and Apple chose not to put a fan in it. 
So are there going to be thermal issues? I don't think issues is the way I would phrase it. But it's very clear that because the Pro has a fan, the Pro will be able to do sustained performance at uh, longer at higher clock speeds. Whereas the Air, eventually it's going to get so hot in there that they're going to have to scale it down and reduce the clock speed and it won't be as fast as the pro but having the macbook air not be as fast as the pro in certain circumstances when there's sustained um, actions like i don't know what video encoding or something like that something that super stresses the processor for a long time Mm -hmm. like i mean that to me that is a natural distinction between the air and the pro um i when when brian uses the word issues here i think it's m- suggestive of what's happened with some of the Macs with Intel processors in them, which have had to really severely constrain themselves because of the the thermal limitations of Apple's designs. And I, I guess to that, I would say the MacBook Air was designed by the company that made the chip that they put in it, and they took the fan out on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's anything that you would call an issue there. I think that Apple must be exactly aware of how that performs and they don't have a problem with it. Yeah, and I think people are focusing on the fan too much as a differentiating thing between the Air and the Pro. Like there is more, right? The battery life is longer and it has a touch bar. These can be benefits. I personally do consider the touch bar a benefit as we've spoken about in the past. I actually kind of like it. I think that it adds something. It can be very frustrating, but I think it adds something, and some people will want that. Like these are different products, and I agree with you as well. Like the issues thing, I can see why you might say that there have been thermal issues with some Apple products in the past, but I think that they must have been very aware of this going into it. They didn't have to do this; they chose to do this. Yeah, right. I I can't imagine that they put something else to fill that space up. Really, it seems it seems unlikely that Apple said, well, what happens if we take the fan out and then looked at it and said, oh no, it's a disaster. Let's ship it. Like mm-hmm. that's not, because it's their, it's their chip and they're aware of it. And let's just, let's just say it. Um, it's a mobile chip. It, the, the, it's not going to do what the Intel chips do. It, it is that they're taking advantage of the fact that they've been making iPads with no cooling system in them and, getting along just fine so they should be able to do the same but again that that is also why the air has no fan and the pro has a fan is it's a differentiator and that's basic you know chip logic that um if you have the fan you're going to be able to sustain performance and not underclock the processor in order to cool it down so um that's why you get a pro if you're worried about that roger asks what do you think about the next ipad pro becoming a dual boot machine with ios and mac os this could placate people who have been wanting a touch Mac. Um, I think it's not ever going to happen, or at least not anytime soon. I think Apple has been very clear that the iPad is the iPad and it's a touch first device. The idea of making it a dual boot. So you'd like go into the settings in the iPad and say, now be a Mac. And it would basically not work right unless you attached stuff to it and turned it into a Mac. I mean, there's nothing stopping from Apple from doing it. I just can't envision it would be a radical change in direction for Apple. 
and in their product philosophy. I think it's far more likely that Apple would one day do something like a convertible Mac that you know you could fold over and put in touch mode and it would basically behave like an iPad than that you'd take an iPad Pro and boot it into Mac OS. That seems super weird to me. And I'm not sure dual booting an iPad is going to placate anyone who wants a touchscreen iMac or touchscreen Mac of any kind. So I I think it's highly unlikely in the in the short term anyway. Yeah. And I would say even in the long term, it's not an iPad if it boots Mac OS. It's something else and you wouldn't call it an iPad. I th- I think I've been seeing this argument a lot from people that don't want touchscreens on Macs. So the thinking is, oh, we'll just the people that want touchscreens on Macs, what they really want is just an iPad, right? Like that people can't conceive of these things as being able to be shared. So the solution is just put Mac OS on the iPad Pro. Like, well, that that didn't really solve the problem that I was looking for. What what yeah. I want and what I do want is a touchscreen on my Mac, so I can use the touchscreen when I want to. Not that I assume that I will be using a touchscreen all the time. Like. I do firmly believe touchscreens are coming to the Mac. I do, 100%, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think to think that that's not happening is wild to me. Like, the march of progress will suggest that this is something that is happening. It is wild to me that it is argued differently from that. Like, we don't have them yet. It's coming. Yeah. I believe it. Let's not forget, too, that Apple's whole kind of direction in terms of development is toward Catalyst and toward running iOS apps on the Mac under Apple Silicon. Mm-hmm. Apple's not making an effort to back port, to build a bridge backward from Mac to iOS. And I know that implicit in this question is uh, dual boot, um, which is basically saying, can I make my iPad not an iPad so I can run Mac software on it? And not only do I think Apple wouldn't do that, I also have a hard time imagining that Apple would make any sort of bridge to bring old Mac software back to the iPad because what Apple wants to do is push people forward to adopting new technologies and new ways of developing apps that run across all their platforms instead of providing this sort of backward bridge for Mac compatibility. So are there weird things that Apple could do? Sure. I mean, Apple could build a virtualization engine that ran Mac OS inside of iPad OS on iPad Pros so that you could have a virtual Mac that only worked when you had your, um, you know, a pointing device and a keyboard attached. They won't, but they could. I, I think it's far, far, far more likely that um, the Mac, you view the Mac as the set of Apple's technologies and the iPad is a subset and that throwing the Mac inside the iPad is not what they would do. It's far more likely since they're going down this route already that you would have a Mac that would have a different shape, a different design in terms of the hardware than it currently does. Whether that's just a touchscreen on a laptop or whether that's something more like a convertible, it's already got the ability to run iOS apps. And so I feel like you are you already have a device and an operating system that does all of this. It's macOS. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think the iPad is a product that's meant to run macOS. It's meant to be this simpler um, subset that is not going to run old software like that. So I mean, never say never, but I, I, I'm very... I think it's very unlikely. Yeah, I I don't see them going that way, right? Like I don't see them going iPad Pro to Mac. What they really are going like I like it's the other way around. Like iPad software is coming to the Mac. Mac software is not coming to the iPad because 
the future of Apple's platforms is that, well, now all of our software is going to be closer to what iPad software is than the other way around. And honestly, I, I was thinking about this. The I advocated for a while for an iOS laptop, like just build a, a laptop that runs iPad OS, and it's got a cursor now, cursor support and all that. You could totally do it. I think Apple's ever going to do that because I think it's far more likely that Apple will just release. I mean, we already have this week Mac laptops that run iOS apps. Mm-hmm. There they are. So what's left? And the answer is, you know, like I said, you maybe you can fold the screen back or turn it around or something. Maybe we add uh, touch to the mix and Apple Pencil support to the mix. But those are all things that Apple can do in the context of the Mac that already exists instead of um, building an iPad laptop or anything like that. And so, you know, I think Apple is going to define the iPad as touch tablet that can be attached to other things. And I think that's great. I love the iPad. Um, but I don't know if it, you know, I just, I can't see it. I just can't see it. All right. And final question today comes from Parker, who asks, I always hear people say, quote, this is not a huge year on year upgrade when talking about new iPhones. In your opinion, which iPhone was the largest year over year upgrade? Oh, largest year over year upgrade. Mm -hmm. I have a thought on this. If you'd like me to start. Yes, please. Uh, The iPhone 10. That was a massive year-over-year upgrade. Yeah, It's like, how about we take your iPhone, uh, we get rid of the home button which you've had for years, we extend the screen out, we give you an OLED screen, it's got stainless steel sides, and now has Face ID. Like, massive year-over-year upgrade. And two cameras for those of us who had not been using the Plus. Mm-hmm. And it's bigger. I think that's a good answer. For the people that hadn't been using the Plus. My other one is uh, the iPhone 6, because it included the larger screen like the larger option, right? The iPhone 6 Plus. So like that was also like a huge step as well, um, in my opinion, because it added a whole new model. But I think the biggest will, will for a long time, will, will, will be the 10 as like the biggest year-over-year jump. That was like a truly very different iPhone. Like I honestly, I couldn't imagine another one bigger until they have another new form factor. You know, like, if Apple ever do a folding phone, um, there have been rumors that apparently Apple are moving forward with this for something in 2022. I saw these today that apparently they, they're getting their suppliers to do some testing on some uh, demo units that they've made. That would probably be the next massive jump if they do change the form factor again. I think that's what it takes to be considered like, you know, year over year, no brainer upgrades. It's like, well, you couldn't have had an iPhone that was even close to this one. Right. Other than that, they are iterative because there is only so much you can do. Like, just so much you can do every year, and it still makes sense as a product to continue pushing. So, there you go. Nice. If you would like to send in a question for a future episode of the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag #AskUpgrade, or you can use question mark #AskUpgrade in the Relay FM members Discord. Uh, I want to thank again Tim and Tom from Apple for joining us. It was a great conversation. I'm really happy that we got to be able to spend that time with them again to talk about the wonderful new Macs. Uh, I'm looking forward very much to next week's episode when we all talk about Big Sur. And also I would have had some time as well with one of these M1 Macs. I cannot wait to get my hands on one, Jason. Very excited. Uh, if you, I also want to thank our sponsors for this episode, DoorDash, RemoteWorks, Pingdom, and SaneBox. 
Uh, don't forget, if you want to have longer episodes of Upgrade with additional bonus content and no ads every single week, go to getupgradeplus.com, become a member and support the show. And I want to thank everybody that has done that. If you want to find Jason's work online, go to sixcolors.com and he is at jsnell on Twitter, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to this bumper episode of Upgrade. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.